0: This is Bart Peterson and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast
1: Network. This is Greg Michaels and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco and you are listening
0: to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. The FCPA Compliance Report is the longest running podcast in compliance. Engaging a wide variety of compliance-related guests and topics. Each week, Tom Fox brings you the top commentators and information which will inform your compliance program going forward. Join us again for the top podcast in compliance, hosted by the voice of compliance, Tom Fox. The FCPA Compliance Report is
1: a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.
0: In this episode, I visit with Susan Divers, Senior Executive at LRN. Susan is one of the leaders of the LRN team, which annually produces the Compliance Program Effectiveness Report. The 2020 version has been released. We review its key findings and insights, as well as the LRN Program Effectiveness Index. Finally, we conclude with a key theme of the report and discuss why it is such an important insight for the compliance professional. This is an annual report that is excellent, provides excellent data, And I know you will enjoy this podcast with Susan Divers. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And I know I always say you're in for a real treat, but I really mean it today because I have Susan Divers with me. Susan's with LRN. And we're here to talk about the 2020 Ethics and Compliance Effectiveness Report. So First first of all, Susan, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me. Please tell the audience how you're doing right now.
1: Oh, thank you, Tom. Um, well, we're doing we're doing well, all things considered. Um, everyone is concerned about our broader community um, and our our partners um, and our stakeholders. Um, but we're really working together as a group and staying together. So that's been a tremendous comfort, I think, for everyone.
0: Susan, as I said in my uh, opening, uh, the audience is in for a real treat today, and one of the reasons uh, they are in for such a treat is this is a report that LRN re- releases annually, and you and I have been able to visit about uh, in the past, and it it really is one of the, the top annual reports um, put out to the greater compliance community. So I wanted to start with if you could just maybe review – the background to this report, and why does LRN gather this information and release it in this format annually?
1: Um, thanks, Tom. Um, it, it is an annual report, and I think it stretches back almost 10 years now, although we made some major changes um, three years ago in the approach we took. And the reason we do it is LRN is very much um, a think tank in its way Um, In order to work in the ethics and compliance community, we strongly believe that you have to be invested in best practices and in looking at what works and what works changes over time as um, organizations evolve and the employee workforce changes and the challenges, as we can see today, also change. So we invest a significant amount of effort every year, and I'm privileged to lead that effort um, in looking at what makes an ethics and compliance program effective and how do you actually prevent misconduct, which in the end is what the goal is. The goal isn't to have the most beautiful code of conduct uh, on earth or to have um, the most vibrant hotline it's to prevent misconduct. So we do it um, to share with the broader community uh, what we see in the area of um, changing behavior for the better.
0: Susan, as you alluded to, uh, when uh, you welcomed uh, or I welcomed you onto the uh, <clears throat> podcast, obviously this year in this time in this health crisis, uh, more is probably going to be uh put on a compliance program, and certainly we have urgency around ethical values That, in a way that that we probably haven't had in our lifetime. Well, one of the things that struck me about the report was um, there have been some fairly catastrophic ethical failures over the past year that you guys highlighted in the report, and this is obviously not new, but you really brought a sense of urgency to this year's report before the coronavirus crisis.
1: Yes, we did, Tom. And that's because last year, sadly, there was a cluster of um, mortal compliance failures. And the three that we highlight in the report are the collapse of the dam in Brazil that was owned by Vale in Minas Geras and the Pacific Gas and Electric fires that were started because of faulty equipment in California and killed people. And then the Boeing 737 MAX problems, um, which it appears uh, really jeopardized the safety of the aircraft and led to, to crashes. So those are very stark and tragic examples of what can happen When people say one thing or focus overly on procedures but neglect and don't focus enough on what's actually happening and whether the procedures are in fact being followed and whether, in fact, the underlying culture uh, is telling people informally, you don't really need to do this and it's not going to matter Uh, because we're going to get the airplane into production by this date anyway. Or, uh, yes, we know there are cracks in the dam, but we'll deal with it at some point. Or in the case of PG&E, we're going to mislead regulators about the fact that our towers uh, need maintenance and are sparking. So we thought those really couldn't be ignored uh, because of the mortal consequences that, that ensued.
0: Susan, I was wondering if you could uh, walk us through some of the key insights from this year's report.
1: I I would say that the first one um, and the the overarching theme is that if you really want to address misconduct, you have to address culture. Um, I think one of the shifts in our profession of ethics and compliance has been away from a sole reliance on rules or even a principal reliance on rules And a recognition that culture is what determines whether you prevent misconduct or not. And as we detail in the report, regulators now get it. Um, It's been a while in coming, but uh, they recognize that, you know, you can pass all the laws you want. You can have as many procedures as you uh, can invent. But in the end, it's the culture of the organization that determines whether they're followed and how they're followed. Um, So with that in mind, um, as the overarching finding, um, we looked at some of the key drivers in setting up and maintaining an ethical culture. And, you know, not surprisingly, one of the first ones is that leaders at all levels have to model values-based behavior. Um, It's not enough if the CEO every quarter says something nice about ethics um, and, you know, the code's updated. Um, What you need in particular, and there's very interesting research on this. Um, John Drimmer of Paul Hastings and I wrote a white paper on it last fall that shows that middle managers – Um, People who interact uh, with employees broadly uh, are critical in this area and having middle managers that really model ethical behavior uh, and are willing to talk about it as well uh, is one of the key drivers of whether you have a culture uh, that supports ethical behavior Um, And then, not surprisingly, um, because this is something that LRN has said for 25 years, that values are critical. Um, Again, yes, you need rules, and people need to know what the process is, but if you don't have a value-based culture that says uh, trust is absolutely critical, respect is critical, transparency is is critical, then you just don't really have a program. Um, In the end, Um, and then another key consideration is, and this is something that you've written about extensively, is, is the ethics and compliance function permeated throughout the organization? Is it operationalized? Um, And do people actually take into account um, what uh, the true values of the company are and what the risk mitigation processes are in making business decisions or is it just sort of something off in a corner that people do once or twice a year? Um, and that's particularly important when you're setting revenue targets or production schedules um, because that has to be an element of consideration. Otherwise, you wind up in a Boeing or pg and or ballet situation. And then another key finding uh, which again won't surprise you, is that regular audit, evaluation, and risk mitigation are key to keeping the program alive and vibrant and meaningful. And one of the best practices we highlight in the report is doing root cause analysis, which means uh, not just sort of saying, "Oh, that was a that was a one off. That was a rogue employee." but taking, being willing to take a hard look and make sure that there isn't something wrong in that system. Um, for example, Wells Fargo, the whole system was corrupt, uh, as it turned out, and it, the code of conduct wasn't driving behavior. It, it was the impossible sales targets. So those are, are four of the key findings that we highlight this year.
0: Susan, what are some of the key or important, or perhaps that's not the right word, what are some of the common elements you see or LRNCs as reasons for ethical scandals?
1: Yeah, well, you know, the the ones that we highlighted um, had very interesting common elements. And, um, you know, that's an area we're going to keep looking at because the more you see it, um, the more important it becomes to talk about it as a way of actually preventing misconduct. But um, the first element that's common in the three that we discussed there and then several others, such as Deutsche Bank and some of the Me Too scandals, is that people knew about the problems um, that led to the disasters. They weren't secret. Um, You know, I was really struck when, and, and actually appalled, when Boeing's former CEO um, testified last autumn before Congress and was asked if they had, um, you know, a culture problem. And he said, no, we just need some more safety procedures. Um, But later, the internal emails uh, that were disclosed and the internal um, messages that were disclosed, you know, clearly demonstrated that many people involved in the production Uh, knew that there were issues and one senior pilot said, I wouldn't let my family fly on this. Would you? Um, So it's frequently the case, if not almost always the case that people knew that there were problems. Um, And then it's equally the case that leaders and managers didn't take ownership, um, even though they knew about the problems. Um, you know, I mean, uh, one of the many egregious facts in the PG&E uh, matter is that months before the deadly fires, PG&E knew that forty-eight of their towers uh, were sparking and had to be replaced entirely. I mean, they had that in reports. They didn't do anything. And then the other thing, and this is again, you know, we're sort of going from bad to worse to worse, but. Um, a lot of the organizations that, particularly the ones that we're looking at, um, took uh, took threats or made reprisals against employees who raised concern uh, concerns. I mean, that was certainly the case in a lot of the Me Too scandals, where anybody that came forward had their career destroyed. Um, but PG and E again in 2014, replaced middle managers because they complained that an ambitious program director was pressuring them to report false progress on safety. Subsequently, they were replaced and the program director was promoted and the false reports approved. So, you know, that makes a mockery out of any process or any ethics and compliance program um, that they had in place at the time. and then another feature that we see uh, with dismaying regularity is that these organizations either misled regulators or were less than candid with them. Um, and, you know, again, um, PG&E is reported, the Wall Street Journal reported that they had um, a history stretching back 15 years of inaccurate reporting Uh, And, of course, they just pled guilty to involuntary manslaughter a felony uh, for their role. And then, lastly, um, the other common element is that aggressive sales targets and deadlines negated the established safety and the ethical procedures. Um, It was reported that Boeing employees said there was a go, go, go pressure to design the 737 MAX to avoid the need for time-consuming simulator training when, as we know from the reports that have come out, uh, that was going to be necessary if pilots were going to be able to control uh, the the, uh, flight uh, problems that that later brought down the planes. Um, And Wells Fargo is, of course, the classic example of aggressive sales targets, Uh, really making a mockery out of a program. So I think those are things that people really need to think about um, as they put their program together, because it helps focus on what's important um, in terms of preventing misconduct.
0: Susan, one of my favorite parts of the annual report is the program effectiveness index, the PEI that was introduced in 2016 to help compliance practitioners in evaluate the impact of their corporate compliance programs uh, by looking at workplace behaviors. Uh, it's one of the things I think many in the compliance community look forward to uh, first for the report, but also your your uh, how you help people walk through the measurements and how they can use the report. And I was wondering if you could tell us what does the program effectiveness ind- index uh, indicate for this report?
1: Sure, Tom. And, and just to, to briefly summarize the change we made in 2016, um, and we were not unique in our um, concern that, that the ENC community had gotten way too focused on checklists. Um, so in 2016, rather than ranking programs uh, in terms of effectiveness based on external criteria, such as have you updated your code? Do you report to the board of directors? Um, do you have regular training? Uh, do you have a hotline? Um, we said those are really program inputs, and what you need to do is look at program outputs. And as we know, r- regulators have now made clear that that's what they're interested in, and the DOJ guidance that came out um, a year ago uh, really focused on program outputs So what we did is we asked questions about um, levels of trust, levels of respect, levels of transparency, and particularly levels of organizational justice in terms of um, how the programs are actually impacting workplace behavior. Uh, And some of those charts are, I think, the most important in the report, because if you really want to drive effectiveness, ensuring that you're doing things to increase trust, increase organizational justice, increase speaking out and prevent retaliation are really critical. Um, so this year, some of the interesting findings, I mean, there are many, um, but um, some of them that particularly jump out. Um, show that when leaders balance compliance risks that arise in pursuit of new business or greater revenue with effective mitigation measures and controls, employees are four times more likely to question decisions if they conflict with organizational values. Now, if that had happened in Boeing, um, that would have been a good thing because people were questioning Um, But they were questioning among themselves, not within the organization or in a way that that was ultimately impactful. Um, We also found that when um, compliance risks are balanced and mitigated uh, in pursuit of business or greater revenue, employees are 3.8 times more likely to do the right thing, even if it isn't in their personal best interest. Uh, And again, pg and some middle managers did speak up at one point, but then they were removed and people were promoted who were falsifying uh, data. Um, another finding is that in those circumstances where compliance risks are balanced, employees are 3.2 times more likely to speak up or speak out even in, ter- in front of managers. So creating a culture In which these kinds of meaningful dialogues and meaningful inputs from the people who are actually on the front lines of doing the work is absolutely critical um, in terms of program effectiveness. I mean, it sounds simple when you say it, um, but when you look at the misconduct scandals, um, it's clear that that isn't always what in fact happens um, in these instances.
0: Susan, if I could turn to you now, uh, what are the five elements uh, LRN finds in an ethical culture?
1: Well, one of the things we find, Tom, and I've mentioned it before, um, but it is absolutely essential uh, that people, uh, I'm sorry, that leaders ensure that there is organizational justice in terms of The organization, and what that means, is that high performers and um, successful performers are held to the same standard. Um, Again, you know, there's that example from PG&E, where uh, a manager was promoted even though he was basically pressuring people uh, to falsify results. Uh, If you do that, then um, you know that's that's not uh that's not promoting organizational justice. Um, and then another key factor in, in this area um, is, as I mentioned before, modeling um, ethical behavior and making sure that you take ownership of risk um, in your operations. It, it shouldn't be something, that's done strictly at the corporate level or at the legal and compliance level. But it should be something that managers do um, by looking at the risk, the ethics and compliance risk in their business and addressing it. And again, I think all of those scandals could have been um, basically prevented had that happened. Um, We also, of course, see a role for boards of directors uh, in supporting and overseeing ethics and compliance. Um, Because without the board holding senior leaders accountable, it's very difficult uh, in some instances to maintain an ethical culture. And you look at uh, particularly some of the sexual harassment scandals where boards were aware one way or another, uh, CBS comes to mind and NBC, that there were major problems with Um, some of the senior people, including the CEO, I believe it was CBS, and yet they turned a a blind eye. Um, And so making sure that boards are engaged in this area is very important. Um, Another key finding is that your values have to permeate everything. They can't just permeate your code or your policies or your training, Um, They have to be really throughout the organization in every corner of it. Or as one CECO said to me this year, uh, values have to be in the drinking water. And what we're seeing in our research is that high-performing organizations, organizations that have impactful um, ethics and compliance programs, are good at basically focusing on values um, prioritizing using values to make decisions, connecting people with a clear sense of the organization's purpose, um, heightening risk awareness, and serving as a resource um, that people can use uh, to figure out you know what they should do in situations that arise. Um, we're seeing the same thing with policies. Um, we do a lot of work in the policy area, helping organizations, simplify their policies so that they're actually accessible to employees and easy to understand and integrated with procedures. Um, One of our partners uh, said he'd like it to be just like Amazon, where you can click on a policy and get to the procedure and check out, do what you need to do, get the scrutiny you need to do, uh, without sort of searching through pages and pages or going through a complicated, time consuming process. Um, we see the sim- same similar issues with training. Um, one of the things that <coughs> we recommend, <coughs> excuse me, is that people use mobile devices to the degree that they can uh, to deliver training because, as we know, Um, people are usually on the go uh, when we're not in a situation like we are today and um, making it again, easy for people um, to get trained and to find the training that they need um, as they do their jobs um, should be a priority and is a priority um, for well-functioning programs. And then, as I mentioned before, Um, emphasizing audit evaluation and risk mitigation is really critical. I am surprised, as I do the PEI report every year, that um, more companies don't review their ethics and compliance procedures every year to reflect uh, key risks. Um, This year, we saw that um, over half of high-performing programs um, did that, and in fact, a substantial percentage. Um, but in the sort of medium impact and lower impact programs, that wasn't the case. And unless you're actually mitigating the risks that you face, um, you know, then I it calls into question the usefulness of your program. And then um, two more findings before um, I wrap this part up. But um, we mentioned risk earlier, and it struck me as I read um, all of the guidance that came out from various regulators this year, the fraud section, the antitrust division of DOJ, um, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, and even the French uh, uh, anti-corruption agency, how focused they were on mitigating risk risk. Um, because there's a recognition among regulators now that um, you can't address everything with equal weight. You really have to tailor your program to the specific risks that your organization is facing. Uh, And what we see is that high-impact programs do a very, very good job of that. They involve their audit departments in addressing those risks. Um, They... um, They spend a lot of time thinking about risks and getting input on that um, from all levels of the organization. And then they take concrete steps to ensure that their policies and procedures uh, are in in harmony with mitigating those risks. Um, They also train and identify relationship managers or key control uh, personnel uh, that manage that they're that on the front lines for key risks and make sure that they have the training that they need uh, to do their jobs and to mitigate those risks. Um, and they include that kind of risk analysis in mergers and acquisitions. Um, so lastly, uh, the other key finding um, in the report is taking responsibility and learning from mistakes. Um, One of the particularly appalling aspects of the Valley Dam collapse in Brazil last year was that they had had a similar collapse in 2014 and had said, you know, we'll never do that again. Um, You know, we're going to prioritize safety. But they embarked on an ambitious growth program and apparently didn't learn Um, from the previous experience, the lessons that they needed to learn to prevent that from happening again. And that's just really uh, inexcusable. Um, So rather than fall into the trap of saying, oh, it's just one or two people, one rogue employee or two or three, um, what we see is that high-performing programs spend the time and have the courage to take a really hard look at what caused this. Was it a rotten apple or was it a, a rotten tree? Um, and that's that's a key way uh, to ensure that you're not simply repeating the mistakes of the past. So Tom, that was, that's a quick, hopefully, overview of, of the key findings this year.
0: Susan, there was one thing that struck me in reading this report, and, and it's in many ways as basic as it comes, uh, so, I don't want to say I had a blinding flash of insight, but it struck me that um, all of the characteristics of an effective compliance program, all of the characteristics of companies who have an ethical culture that you found in this year's effectiveness report are interrelated. And we often talk about, and I'm as guilty as anyone, the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program. OECD 13 Good Practices, and then would detail what you need to do to, to meet every one of those standards. But in many ways, this report drove home to me that you can't have an effective compliance program, you can't have an ethical culture, unless they're all working in concert. And uh, working in concert together, uh, of course, that includes your continuous monitoring and then continuous upgrade and improvement, but it's, it's uh, um, I know this is an audio podcast, so uh, listeners won't see it, but I'm interlacing my fingers because I really want to emphasize the interconnectedness of all of the components of a compliance program. Would that be a fair assessment from this year's report?
1: Absolutely, Tom. And, and it's really a key principle that I think has been somewhat neglected. Um, and I think it's in part been neglected because there's been much too much emphasis on checklists um, and I remember, I think it was three or four years ago, the Ethics and Compliance Initiative came out with their Blue Ribbon uh, Best Practices Report, and they were very harsh about the fact that that people rely way too much on checklists, and mentioned that it can give you a false sense of security. Uh, and in our practice, which involves evaluating ethics and compliance programs. I've been surprised to see um, top top quality organizations and fortune 500s and uh, world leading companies and organizations that have all the elements of a program it's as if somebody as you said you know took the OECD checklist and said great we've got that and we've got this and we've got this and we've got that um, but they haven't connected them and they haven't, really looked at them in a holistic and dynamic way uh, and said, okay, um, what is it that we're really trying to accomplish? And how are all these elements either working together to accomplish it uh, or not? And what we see, too, in our practice is that when organizations actually do connect those dots um, they find that they have a lot of hidden synergies or hidden successes uh, that they can then scale out um, and, and use. I remember we were working with an international organization, and um, they have a very vibrant intellectual community in the organization that voluntarily was looking at problems like domestic violence and finding commonalities. Uh, that then could be used to really drive uh, best practices in terms of eliminating uh, domestic violence. But they weren't integrating that type of intellectual content and um, input into their program. And, you know, that was low-hanging fruit for them. They could do that, and they started doing that. And they really started becoming very innovative in the ways they tackled some of the issues they were facing, for example, sexual harassment. Um, So backtracking for a minute, taking a look at your program and saying, okay, it may technically meet the criteria that you're mentioning and that the regulators have put out, um, but are we really maximizing its use? Are we ensuring, as the one CECO said to me this year, that it's in the drinking water. And to do that, you really need to get all the pieces working together. Um, And if your emphasis um, is on, for example, this year, resiliency and staying together as a community and supporting each other, then um, that should be the message that is carried through uh, and communicate it to people throughout the organization as effectively as you possibly can. Does that answer your question?
0: Oh, it really does. Um, and uh, like I said, it was it was a great insight for me. And one of the things that I'm certainly am going to try and start talking about, uh, I will tell you that I'm also going to purloin your phrase: "Is your compliance is compliance." in your company's drinking water. That's fabulous. <laughs> cool. Susan, unfortunately we are near the end of our time, but I was wondering if the listeners wanted uh, more information, where could they go?
1: Oh, absolutely. Tom. Um, it, it, they're very welcome to go onto our website, LRN.com. Um, the report should be live by close of business. Um, and we're always happy to enter into dialogue, um, answer questions, um, and uh, carry forward a focus on what actually works. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Susan, thank you, and I look forward to continuing the conversation.
1: (laughs) Me too, Tom. Take
0: care. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I've linked to the LRN 2020 Compliance Program effectiveness report in the show notes. I would urge you to check it out. It has some great insights. I've also linked to the LRN site. They have some great resources available. And of course, in the compliance community, they're extraordinarily well known. I hope you will join me for next week's episode where I take up another topic of FCPA or compliance related. The FCPA compliance report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-suite radio. Thank you again for listening, and I look forward to visiting with you again next week.
1: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.